Hi, everyone. It's Kristen. Before we get started, I want to ask you a favor. For an upcoming episode, we want to hear from you. We want to know how you decide which candidates to support. What issues matter most to you? Are you concerned about healthcare, the environment, immigration reform? What issues do you consider when you decide who will earn your vote? Give us a call at 202-618-2517 and let us know where you're from and what you care about most. Again, that's 202-618-2517. Okay, now let's start the show. This is Election 101, and I'm Kristen Holmes. All weekend long, we've been asking ourselves, what happens if something happens to the president? Well, the short answer is Vice President Mike Pence takes over. What do you know about Mike Pence? What do any of us really know about what the vice president does other than this most important of tasks, taking over if the president is unable to do his or her duty? A lot of us have been paying a lot more attention to this year's vice presidential candidates over the past few days. But it's not always so. And in the past, there's been a lot of debate about how much the vice presidential pick actually influences voters' decisions. A couple of weeks ago, I called up a friend to talk about whether the vice presidential pick really matters. I'm Mo Rocca. I'm coming to you from my apartment in Manhattan from a room lined with a bunch of history books. Uh, oh, and I'm looking up at, oh, this is crazy. I'm looking up at my presidential Pez dispensers. I forgot who gave me those. Mo is a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and the host of the Mobituaries podcast. And he's obsessed with presidential history. I mean, there's so many little undiscovered nuggets about vice presidents. Like John Nance Gardner just had a great personality. And he famously said that the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm piss. He's definitely the guy that you want on your bar trivia team for those tricky questions about vice presidents. I have a certain sympathy for William Rufus Devane King. He is the only vice president to have taken the oath of office in a foreign land. He was in Cuba. I'm also interested in Charles Dawes because Charles Dawes wasn't just a Nobel laureate, but he wrote a song. It was called Melody in a Major. It had no lyrics. Then later had lyrics put to it. You have and became a number one hit, sung by Tommy Edwards. And your Despite all those factoids he remembers, when we talked a couple weeks ago, Mo told me that when it comes to election outcomes, he didn't really think vice presidential nominations mattered. So I tried to convince him. Today... Vice Presidents. The vice presidency got started way back during the first presidential election in the 1780s. Now, in those days, Americans were more loyal to their home state than to the country as a whole. And the framers of the Constitution were pretty worried about that. They didn't want people to only vote for the candidates from their state. So they came up with a solution— make voters pick two candidates from different states. And after the president was chosen, the runner-up from another political party became the vice president. And we've had a VP ever since. But over time, it became clear that a president and a vice president needed to be able to work together 
and that having the same policy goals was important, especially if the vice president needed to take over. Today, when a candidate is choosing a running mate, there are a lot of things to consider. And many of those considerations boil down to, can my running mate help me win the election? To help me work through this, I talked to someone who's been studying vice presidential picks for years. Yeah, I am like a fidgeter, especially when I'm talking about, you know, vice president. Julia Azari is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. So the first thing I asked her was whether or not she was on team Kristen or team Mo. Does the vice presidential choice matter or not? There's actually a new book out that kind of reconciles these two perspectives called Do Running Mates Matter by Christopher Devine and Kyle Kopko. And that's confirmed this this hunch that I've had in the latter camp that you just described for a long time. No one actually votes for the vice president. But on the other hand, the ticket shows you how the presidential candidate thinks, what they value and how they see the kind of project of their candidacy and potential presidency. I think the classic example of that that people like to point to is uh, John McCain's selection of Sarah Palin. I will be honored to accept your nomination for vice president of the United States. I think this is one of the most fascinating cases. I'm so glad you brought it up. So Palin, almost everyone agrees that this was a mistake. Even people who are ideologically sympathetic with Palin, um, she wasn't very well prepared. She kind of didn't have the the intellectual curiosity about policy issues to really rise to the occasion. It ended up, I think, really reflecting poorly on his judgment as a candidate. But I think when, when Trump picked Pence, by selecting someone out of the conservative Christian community, Trump signaled to that segment of the Republican electorate, like, I, I get it. And like, your values will be part of my administration. And also by picking someone with conventional experience, you know, this, I, I'm going to be serious about governing and about bringing those values to reality. And similarly with Harris, that she came off um, as somebody who was not only like different from Biden, but also you know, is prepared, has been vetted on the national stage, has served in the Senate. That sort of shows that Biden wasn't just looking for like, who is the person who will fulfill some political need on the ticket, but who is a person who will actually, you know, who's really qualified for this job. Were you surprised that he picked Harris? Not at all. There's this kind of open question about would Harris be someone who would kind of pull the ticket left, um, which what one of the things that my co-author and I find is that's not something Democratic presidential candidates usually do. Yeah. Democratic presidential candidates usually pick somebody who is either very close to them ideologically or who actually moves the ticket to the to the right and closer to the center. You know, one VP pick I think we don't talk about a lot is is actually Tim Kaine from 2016, very close to Clinton ideologically, and not somebody who helped at all on the left flank, even though there was very clearly that left rift. So I'm curious what you think about this. And of course, it goes back to this idea of Obama and Biden and and whether or not Biden actually helped Obama in the end, helped him seem like a safe choice. And I wonder sometimes if Hillary Clinton ever thought that she was in Obama in 2016, that the radical choice was to elect a woman. So she needed her own Biden, right? A white guy who'd been in politics for a while. And that's why she chose Tim Kaine, who in the end, many experts don't really believe helped her all that much. And perhaps that's because she was actually the establishment person going into the ticket. 
No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that VP selection is a little bit different ballgame for um, someone like Obama, who is coming in as uh, relatively as a fresh face. And it's like, okay, you need an older white person with a lot of policy experience. Whereas if you're the experienced person, you're the known quantity in the establishment figure, then like, how do you pick a VP who is going to balance out some of the drawbacks of that position while simultaneously picking someone who's qualified? So you want someone who balances you, someone who is commanding but doesn't overshadow you. Someone who can step into the job immediately if they need to, and who's going to be an effective campaigner. This is essentially a unicorn hunt. But how do you find a unicorn? More on that after a quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. So it sounds like finding the right running mate is hard. And Julia Azari thinks there's one more component to consider. Chemistry. Joe and I decided it was time for a guy's trip. Now, I'm proud to introduce a buddy of mine. It's not how you usually talk about the president, is it? But he is. This also gives the internet one last chance to (laughs) talk about our bromance. Julia told me that she thinks that voters see chemistry as a sign that the pair could work well together. Do they see the project of the ticket in the same way? That doesn't mean they have to agree on everything. And in fact, we know that like Biden sometimes behind closed doors disagreed with Obama. That's good. You want government to represent a lot of different perspectives and ideas. But do they have a, a the ability to have a kind of working relationship where they can work that out? And do they broadly see the vision of the ticket as wanting to accomplish the same things? So maybe you have a short list of possible unicorns. Well, now what? You want to make sure that there are no surprises in their past that could pop up during a campaign. You want to figure out how much you agree or disagree on key questions. Can you give me two examples here? One of a vice president and presidential duo that was largely seen as a success and also one that was not. Dan Quayle kind of comes to mind. 
So Dan Quayle was George H.W. Bush's vice president. He was a senator from Indiana and like brought on very stupid in retrospect, but like unnecessary negative attention. During his vice presidency, there were a couple of pretty silly things. He got in an argument with a uh, like an elementary school kid about how to spell potato. Now, Dad, add one little bit on the end. Think of potato. How's it? Potato. You're right, phonetically, but what else? There you go. He did this sort of culture war thing with the show Murphy Brown where he, he criticized uh, the character on the show for being a single mother. And what I didn't like uh, about uh, Murphy Brown was the message that it was sending. And it was somewhat glorifying illegitimacy. There are too many children born out of wedlock. And ultimately, there were a lot of reasons why that ticket was not successful for re-election in 1992. But I don't think that Quayle did anything to, to help. And then in the in the more successful camp, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't uh, we didn't talk about Walter Mondale, who was Jimmy Carter's vice president and really someone who experts in the vice presidency see as a kind of pivotal figure in expanding that role. And Mondale came in. So he had been a senator from Minnesota and came in with like a little bit more of that national level experience, whereas Carter was this one term governor of Georgia. And in a time, I mean, coming from Minnesota helped at a time when people were not thrilled that the Democratic candidate was from the South, too. Right, exactly. So vice presidential picks can help expand a candidate's voter base by region or demographics. But there's another really important thing that a vice president has to have. The ability to step into the presidency at a moment's notice, like in the case of a death of a president. Over the White House at Washington... The flag flies at half-staff as a grief-stricken nation mourns the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States. Inside, in the historic cabinet room, Vice President Harry S. Truman takes the oath of office as 32nd President, administered by Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone. So Truman was FDR's third vice president. And was kind of selected as like, okay, we got to pick somebody and whatever. He seems, he seems okay. (laughs) Um, And he wasn't really let in on any important policy. And Truman becomes president during World War II and really hasn't been informed or or let in on a lot of what's going on in, in governance. But it's really an example of somebody who was not a national level politician and would not have become president under other circumstances, and then became commander-in-chief during World War II. Under the circumstances, he was, he was able to get up to speed pretty well. The first time a vice president took the top job unexpectedly was in 1841, when William Henry Harrison died after only 32 days in office, and John Tyler took his place. To date, seven vice presidents have followed suit. And this year, with two presidential candidates in their 70s, there have been a lot of conversations about old age. So I asked Julia if voters might have this in mind. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that this, for Biden, that has been a constant part of the conversation is like, is Biden going to finish his term? Is he going to run for a second term if he's elected? So I think that I think that's really important. I don't want to break your heart because I know that a lot of this is your life's work, but I'm sure you have also seen what I've seen on late night shows when they question people on a boardwalk somewhere and they say, you know, who is the president of the United States and who is 
the vice president. And I'm sure you've seen that there are a lot of people who who don't know who the vice president of the United States is. And it, it was the same under Obama. And, and it, you know, this is just a trend we have seen in the country. I'm curious what you think that the general public's understanding of the vice president's role is. I think that this speaks to a larger problem in American politics. Although I will say this, as someone for whom this is my life's work, like this is is disheartening, but also great. I hear this and I think (laughs) I am needed. I will make more podcasts. I will teach more classes. And so the, the trick I think is having more diverse vice presidential candidates is is helpful in that regard. And having vice presidential candidate who kind of speaks to a particular segment of society that has been underrepresented, it may not change how that segment of society votes. But it, it does show that politics isn't just limited to a narrow segment of people. It is not just older white men, although it's it's still mostly them. And I do think that on, on balance, that's good for engagement. And what we want is for for as many people as possible to be in that that engaged segment of the electorate. So the VP debate is coming up. What will you be paying attention for in when you watch the debate? I will be looking for whether the debate is similar to what the conventions were, which is like both parties trying to frame the election as a referendum on democracy and on the nation's fundamental identity versus a debate about the records and the policy ideas of the respective candidates and tickets. And I think that also the vice president plays an important role making the presidential ticket not just about one person, but kind of expanding it out to being about a ticket and like more ideas. So it kind of it reminds everybody that the presidential ticket isn't like just the president. Now, of course, I'll be watching the vice presidential debate, too. And so will my friend Mo Rocca. I don't want to fall into the trap of watching it as a sporting event. I'm not as interested in the differences between Senator Harris and Vice President Biden as other people have been. We saw that in the primaries. We know where they differ. Now they're on the same team. But I am interested, though, in the differences that Vice President Pence has with Donald Trump, because we know from their personal stories that there must be a real tension there. Tonight's debate will be the first time we see this year's vice presidential candidates face off. And over the weekend, this debate just became one of the most important election events of the month. So I want to know what you are looking for in a vice president. What did you think of the debate? Did anything they say resonate with you or raise new questions? Send us an email at askelection101 at cnn.com or DM me on Twitter at Kristen H. CNN. Election 101 is a production of CNN Audio and iHeartRadio. It's hosted by me, Kristen Holmes. This episode was produced by Constanza Gallardo. It was mixed by Ben Shano. Meryl Agish was our fact checker. Haley Thomas is the senior news producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Additional support for the show comes from Greta Cohn, Lacey Roberts, Sarah Nix, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, and Lisa Namoro. 